0: Hello, and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan, and Tegan Taylor. Today, how trials of COVID vaccines and treatments may be excluding exactly the people who need them most. We've got a story on fish oil supplements where they might not be as good for the heart as some say they are. And Tegan, hi, you've got a story on endometriosis and genes.
1: Exactly. If you talk to someone with endometriosis about depression and gut issues, you might see them nodding furiously. Uh, But a new study has shown there's actually a genetic link between these three conditions and possibly even a cause and effect link.
0: Yeah, it sounds weird, but we'll come back to that later. Thanks, Tegan. And again, just when you thought it was safe to go out, new research into another virus from bats, which has pandemic potential it's called the Nipah virus and we've had the researcher involved on before but ironically prior to covid dr john epstein is a new york based epidemiologist with the eco health alliance and i spoke to him earlier
2: it's my pleasure thanks for having me
0: ironically we've spoken about this before on the show
2: yeah it's amazing to at one point have a conversation about this in theory as to what could happen and it's an entirely different story when you're experiencing it it's very surreal
0: as we've been saying for a while on this show and others, the next pandemic could be tomorrow, just around the corner. And people have been watching with great nervousness Nipah virus. Just tell us about the
2: Nipah virus before we get on to your research. Nipah virus may be the worst virus that nobody's ever heard of. This is a virus in a different family of virus from the coronavirus. Nipah virus is a paramyxovirus, and so it's in the same viral family as measles. And this is a virus that's carried by a different sort of bat, large fruit bats, called flying foxes. and. When this virus gets into people, it causes a very severe central nervous system disease. People lose consciousness, they can go into a coma, and it can be fatal anywhere from 40% up to 75% of the time. And it's a virus that's capable of spreading from person to person, although from what we've seen so far, fortunately, it's it's limited in its ability to do that. And the infamous Hendra virus,
0: which was in Queensland, where there was a spread from the same species of bat, from flying foxes to humans, in fact, in this case, a trainer, that was the same
2: virus? Nipah and hendra virus are cousins, but they behave very similarly. Nipah itself isn't present in Australia. Nipah virus was first discovered about three or four years after hendra in Malaysia when it emerged on a pig farm. And so it caused a very severe respiratory disease in pigs. And in the process of pigs coughing, farmers were getting infected. And about 40% of the farmers who got infected died. And that epidemic was controlled through the depopulation of pig farms across the country. But we've recognized outbreaks of Nipah virus encephalitis in people in Bangladesh and India. And there we see this virus spilling over directly from bats into people. And then there's onward transmission from person to person. And so it's quite concerning because we have a a fatal virus that's repeatedly spilling over from its natural reservoir, flying foxes into people, and then causing small outbreaks, but clusters of cases that spread locally. And what have you discovered in your studies
0: of this in terms of how the virus is transmitted and what happens in the bat populations? There
2: tends to be a certain area, a certain part of Bangladesh, where outbreaks have tended to occur, or at least be recognized, at a certain time of year. So that would be in the winter months between November and April, and in the western region of Bangladesh. And most of the outbreaks start from a person becoming infected by drinking raw date palm sap which is the sap of a palm tree that's harvested by carving the bark off trees and allowing the sap to flow into a clay pot and the bats that carry Nipah virus have learned to exploit this sap flow as a food resource. So So they they come come in overnight. That's right. Sometimes they urinate or defecate into the pots and that's how people get exposed to Nipah virus. The question we were trying to answer with this study was, why is it that we're seeing this type of seasonality? Is it strictly because the winter months tend to be when date palm sap is primarily harvested and consumed? And is it just limited to that area of the country because of this route of transmission being available? And so in this study, we tested bats across the country and we tested bats from a single location over about six years to see if there were any patterns of infection within bats that could give us clues as to why epidemics happen in people when they do. And what did you find? What really drives Nipah virus infection in bats is that over time, the population of bats has immunity from having an outbreak of Nipah that they lose gradually. And we saw that about every two years, the population lost its level of protection from what is called herd immunity, something we've talked a lot about in the context of COVID, And then that bat population becomes susceptible to an outbreak. There was an outbreak in Kerala in southern India. Was that the same story? These bats carry Nipah virus everywhere they're found. So when there was an outbreak 1,200 kilometers to the southwest in Kerala, India, it surprised a lot of people, but it really shouldn't have. You really have to anticipate that anywhere bats in this group of bats, Teropis bats, which are flying foxes, they live across South and Southeast Asia, through Australia and in the South Pacific. Anywhere that those bats live and live with people, there is the potential for NEPA or a NEPA-like virus to jump into people and cause an outbreak. So we very much need to be aware of that and paying attention in places where we haven't been so far. So what's the pandemic potential for Nipah virus? It's a really good question and it's a tough one. The good news is that so far the outbreaks of Nipah virus have been fairly self-contained. So you get spillover from bats into people and then you tend to get about five chains of transmission. One person gives it to another, gives it to another few and another, and then it kind of dies off. The concern is that we don't yet understand how the genetics of NEPA virus, how different strains translate into how transmissible or how deadly this virus is. And so the concern is that there's a whole diversity of NEPA-like viruses circulating naturally in bats, and it's possible that one type might be more easily transmitted, which is why we have to pay such close attention to this virus. There's no vaccine, there's no drug that treats it, and should that strain emerge from bats into people, it could have the potential to cause a widespread outbreak. And that's what's so concerning. We might be missing cryptic outbreaks that could expand into something bigger before we have a chance to contain them. Is there anything to learn for COVID from Nipah? It illustrates What we do still need to learn about SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID, the majority of evidence really points to horseshoe bats. And the closest known relative to SARS-CoV-2 was found in a horseshoe bat in Yunnan province in China. And so we still need to know more about the ecology to understand the risk and the likelihood of something like COVID happening again. That's something we've gotten to or closer to with Nipah virus, where with this study, we have a much better understanding of the frequency of infection in bats when the risk is greatest for spillover to people. And, and that's where we need to get to with COVID. And so I think it may be a surveillance issue. There may indeed be cases of Nipah virus that are going unnoticed. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Dr. John Epstein is a New York-based epidemiologist with the EcoHealth Alliance. And you're with RN's Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. A group of U.S. researchers has uncovered some troubling findings about the design of trials into COVID-19 treatments and vaccines. Some of the very people who could ven- benefit most may have been systematically excluded, in particular the elderly and people with other medical conditions. One of the authors was Dr. Su Quan of Mount Sinai Hospital in New York.
3: It's unfortunate, but just historically, trials have excluded older adults, even with heart disease or diabetes or cancer trials. And due to that fact, our National Institutes of Health instituting a policy a couple of years ago here requiring the inclusion of older adults in clinical trials in order to obtain federal funding. So with that in mind... And with you know, the current pandemic, we to look at, OK, with all the clinical trials that have been performed, what is happening? Are they putting this into effect?
0: So you went through what the protocols, in other words, the design of these studies to see what their, and to use yes. technical terms, what their inclusion criteria was, who's in and who's out?
3: Exactly. So we identified and reviewed all clinical trials for COVID-19 to June of this year to determine whether persons, over the age of 65 would be excluded directly on age criteria or based on other indirect exclusionary criteria which may preferentially exclude older adults.
0: So this would be comorbidities. You've got another disease, for example, like diabetes. Yes, no,
3: of course, yeah. The most common age-related exclusions were concerns regarding any degree of cognitive impairment and concerns about obtaining consent. Dementia, for example, was considered a justifiable exclusion And there were very few studies that offered the option of using a proxy, for example, as consent for participants. And there were, as you mentioned, comorbidities. There were very broad, uh, non-specified exclusion within the exclusion criteria. For example, anyone who smoked or anyone who had any hypertension, be it well-controlled or not. So it was very non-specific.
0: course, people are most concerned about vaccines. You did this in June. To what extent were the phase three studies of vaccines that you looked at? In other words, you might have looked at an early phase trial rather than a phase three, which, and we're seeing the fruits of the phase three vaccine trials coming through now. And I had thought that the Food and Drug Administration had insisted on strong sampling of older people. Recent
3: guidance from the FDA, which regulates vaccines, they strongly encourage the inclusion of diverse populations in clinical vaccine development, which includes racial and ethnic minorities, as well as older people, and those with underlying medical problems, as well as women who are pregnant. But the FDA does not require drug makers to meet those goals, and will not refuse trial data that doesn't comply either. Nor are pharmaceutical firms required to publicly disclose their demographic goals either. When you, you look at the yeah. vaccine
0: trials, what proportion did you think had age-based exclusions that you felt were unreasonable?
3: You mentioned phase 3 trials. For our study, up until that point, of the around you know, 850 complete number of trials, there are around just over 200 phase 3 clinical trials, which are intended to include older adults. However, I think around fifty percent were still likely to exclude them either due to age or for indirect reasons related to their age.
0: And many seem to have excluded pregnant women as well.
3: Exactly. I mean, thankfully the most recent Pfizer trial, which looks promising, has included the older population. Whether, you know, they read our paper and decided to ramp up that group or not, we don't know. But we're very grateful that certainly the Pfizer trial has included the older adult population for their vaccine.
0: Is there any excuse for this, saying, oh, well, you know, if we've got to spend time getting secondary consent for somebody who might be cognitively impaired, it's going to slow us down, we've got to get the results fast. Is is there any excuse for it? (laughs) As as a
3: clinician and scientist, it's hard to justify, really. For example, as a standing exclusion, if someone has stable hypertension that's been very well treated It'll be hard to justify in my opinion. It's a condition that's present in over half of older adults and is often very well controlled with medication. So um,
0: what's the regulator to do? So in Australia, it's the Therapeutic Goods Administration. They will look at the phase three trials and the data. And they're supposed to give marketing right. approval based on the data. And if the data right. don't include pregnant women, they don't include older people with comorbidities, then they're right, kind of forced right. into the situation to say, this new vaccine is indicated for anybody over 20 and, and anybody over sixty-five with no comorbidities, but we can't approve it for pregnant women or people with diabetes. I mean, that's going to be pretty right. uncomfortable for the general public, is it not?
3: No, I completely agree. And I think older adults will be ultimately denied treatments and vaccines, and as a result, equitable distribution to this population will not be possible. And that's an egregious oversight.
0: And you may only get one shot of this.
3: That's true. You know, I, I hope not. You know, this is anecdotal um, evidence but you know if you know speaking to the older adults within our practice they are very willing and able to be enrolled into clinical trials and enrollment challenges can be very readily addressed with advanced preparation um appropriate staff training involving experts in aging research for example and i think this should be mandated across for sure
0: not just a so nice to have Luke, thank you very much indeed for joining us.
3: No, not at all. It's been an absolute
0: pleasure. Dr Charles Su Kwan works at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. A high proportion of people aged 45 and over in Australia are taking fish oil supplements. They've been touted for improving mood, reducing inflammation and protecting your heart. But as time goes on and better designed trials are published, the evidence for the benefits of fish oil supplements has weakened. In the last day or so, a trial has been published internationally looking at whether omega 3 fatty acids, those are thought to be the active components of fish oil, protect people at high risk of heart attacks and strokes. The results, though, were disappointing. The lead author was Professor Stephen Nichols, who's director of Monash Heart and the Victorian Heart Institute. Welcome to the Health Report, Stephen. Thank you. Tell us about the people you studied.
4: So, we studied people who were at high risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. So, these were people who either had either a heart attack or, stroke. or had had some sort of kind of stent or bypass procedure, or people who we considered to be high risk primary prevention. And they were people who either had diabetes or a combination of multiple risk factors that we thought would put them at a high risk of having uh, a clinical event. In addition, it was important that these people had to have evidence of an elevated triglyceride and a low level of what we call HDL cholesterol, the good form of cholesterol. Why was that? Well, because we knew that in patients uh, in clinical trials before where we had shown the benefits of statins, the drugs that commonly are used to lower... The bad form of cholesterol and have prevented heart attacks and strokes in large clinical trials. We know that in those studies where triglyceride levels have been high and HDL cholesterol levels have been low, that those patients remained at a very high risk of uh, still a high risk of having a heart attack or a stroke, even if they're treated with a statin.
0: Should we just de- we just need to decode this really quickly? So triglycerides are another form of fat in your blood, and in fact they make the low-density lipoprotein more toxic, if you like, and the, uh, the high-density lipoprotein has a protective effect, but statins have no influence on either of those. You've got to kind of lose weight, lose your abdominal fat to affect your triglycerides. and You've got to take more exercise to get your HDL up.
4: You do, and we have many patients in our clinic in whom they're on statins. We're able to get their bad cholesterol down, but these other lipid abnormalities are are still there, and they present a major challenge for us in the clinic on a day-to-day basis.
0: So you were hoping that the addition of fatty acids, the omega-3 fatty acids, might fix that up?
4: Well, we were, and as you said, this has been a contentious area for decades. In fact, uh, early population studies suggested that fish oil should be protective. Uh, And then we've seen a lot of clinical trials using relatively low doses of omega-3 fatty acids, and none of them worked. And, And over the time of looking at those studies, a number of us thought, well, it probably may be a function of the dose of omega-3 fatty acids because you need to be able to take sufficiently high enough doses to actually raise the levels of omega-3 acids in the tissue, such as the heart muscle and the blood vessels, to be able to have the benefit. And so more recent clinical trials have tried to look at the effects of administering super high doses of omega-3 fatty acids.
0: And you use the combination of the two that are supposed to be effective, which is EPA and DHA?
4: And we did. And, and and so we knew that there had already been two large trials that had used EPA exclusively. Both had reported benefit. Uh, we wanted to see whether the combination of EPA and DHA, again, at a high dose, um, would be protective. And again, the population studies would have suggested that that should have been the case.
0: And when you buy commercial preparations of fish oil of omega-3 fatty acids, have they got both in them traditionally?
4: They, they do. You can buy purified versions of both, but, but the other important thing to keep in mind is that almost all of those preparations that you can buy over the counter contain actually very small quantities. Of omega-3 fatty acid and so that, that there are public health ramifications of the findings of these trials
0: indeed and just to because we're running we're going run out of time very shortly but the you're looking at whether people died of heart disease whether they had a non-fatal heart attack or non-fatal stroke or whether they needed um to have a stent put in or or or, or, or a bypass
4: Yeah, it is. And we did a study of 13,000 patients in 22 countries. We showed absolutely no benefit whatsoever. In addition, we saw some safety issues. We saw some gastrointestinal intolerance, uh, abdominal pain, um, diarrhoea, and we also saw an increase in the risk of atrial fibrillation, a very common heart rhythm disturbance, which can be associated with a higher risk of stroke in the long term.
0: So why would you get a higher risk of atrial fibrillation? So that that that's in the active group rather than the placebo group.
4: That's that's correct, and that's a really interesting observation because. For many years, uh, investigators in the fish oil space have wondered whether they may actually have a protective effect on heart rhythm because they can get into cell membranes and stabilize those membranes. Uh, But what we have now seen, not only our clinical trial, but other clinical trials in this space have demonstrated that um, omega-3 fatty acids do increase the rate of atrial fibrillation.
0: So isn't that interesting? Because... I mean, you would know this, you're running heart institute. But there's almost an epidemic of atrial fibrillation going on at the moment. Do you think it's fish oil caused?
4: Well, we think it well, we don't think the fish oil is causing the epidemic of atrial fibrillation that we see, but we certainly don't need any additional factors because atrial fibrillation presents enough of a challenge for us in the clinic. So and again, as I said, it has kind of really flipped the whole field upside down because at first we thought these should have a favorable effect on heart rhythm yet they're having an unfavorable effect and that has potential major implications if you think of all the different reasons why people might take a fish oil it may be just for knee pain you've got suddenly a man in his 70s with a bit of osteoarthritis taking fish oil uh, to improve his knee pain who suddenly then has a greater risk of atrial fibrillation Uh, we think there are important messages there
0: so is the message save your money
4: I think it's save your money in terms of over-the-counter. The other thing I always say to all of my patients who spend a lot of money on over-the-counter fish oils is actually to talk to their doctor and to understand why it is that you're taking the fish oil. If you're taking the fish oil to prevent having a heart attack, then that's the wrong reason to take it. You may have other reasons to take it, but I think that whether you've been prescribed a medication or whether you buy something over-the-counter in, the, in a pharmacy, I think it's always good advice to discuss that with your GP.
0: But GPs won't necessarily know the results of this trial and 45 percent of their patients over 45 are taking fish oil.
4: They are and so I think that you know our ability to communicate the results of trials are important and, and that represents a challenge whether trials kind of show drugs work or they don't work and so I think we've got to find better ways to kind of get that message across.
0: Stephen thank you very much. Thank you. Professor Stephen Nichols of the Victorian Heart Institute at Monash University and um, you can have a chat with your GP and refer them to the health report. And now, for something that affects one in three women and costs sufferers about $30,000 a year in lost work and healthcare costs, we don't know enough about endometriosis. That's when the tissue, similar to the lining of the uterus, grows elsewhere in the body and, and cause pain, especially pain in the pelvis and even infertility so awareness of endometriosis is much better than it used to be um, but it was often dismissed as a woman's issue but a new genetic study is showing endometriosis has a link, genetic link to depression and gut issues and there might be a cause and effect link Hi Tegan, you've been looking at this
1: Hi yeah it's a crazy link to be to be showing isn't it and it's sort of a, a sort of thing where you go maybe if you had debil- debilitating t- pain every month and you doctors be a bit
0: depressed couldn't give
1: you an answer you know it wouldn't be surprised that you're depressed but actually it looks like the genetic uh, cause and effect link actually works in the other direction so tell bonkers. me about tell me about the study yeah, sure. So this is a really big study that looked at a couple of big genetic databases and basically they were looking they were looking for a shared genetic risk factor for depression and endometriosis because they knew that there was observational studies have shown that in people with depression, when women with depression, they're twice as likely as the general population to have endometriosis. And similarly, in women with endometriosis, they're twice as likely as the general population to have depression. So there seemed to be a link there. And so they were looking for a genetic, shared genetic risk factor, and they found several, actually. And then when they did more analysis, they showed this cause and effect relationship between depression on endometriosis. And they both seemed to have a causal relationship with Something that is involving the gastric mucosa, so gastrointestinal reflux disease or gastritis peptic ulcers. Um, And so there does seem to be some kind of linear relationship between the genes that are maybe malfunctioning to cause these gastric conditions and things like depression and endometriosis.
0: Now, these studies are called GWAS, G- G- Genome-Wide Association Studies. So they're not gene sequencing. They're looking at 700,000 separate points in the genome, where, and these points called SNPs are near where genes might be. And they have been criticised as you know, exercises in just gathering data, which might not be um, important, or they might just be accidental associations.
1: Yeah, I think that it fits into a broader field of research where we've got these observational studies on one side where it looks like people are more likely to have one of these things if they've got the other thing, but you can't show the cause and effect. And so I spoke to one of the researchers from the study, Dale Nileholt from the Queensland University of Technology, and he said that when you look at the genetics, you're able to draw a clear link between endo and these other conditions.
4: As a geneticist, um, we always look
0: at genetics because it's less influenced by some of these other environmental
4: factors that could make something look like it's comorbid. But if we find shared genetic risk factors, well, that's in your germline. So that's what you've
0: inherited. And by doing these type of analyses that we've done, we really confirm and validate
4: that there's something that's biologically shared across individuals that suffer these traits.
0: So what does this mean? That's uh, Dale Niold Ny- from Queensland University of Technology. So what does this mean for women living with endometriosis, Tegan?
1: Well, when I started reporting on this story, I thought I'd put the call out to my friends and family, see if there's anyone who I knew who had this experience. I was staggered by the number of people who replied. And the stories are just heartbreaking. And that idea of, of what Dale just said about uh, validating, <laughs> he was talking about validating in a scientific sense, but I think for women personally, it is very validating to hear that this is a genetic thing. Delayed diagnosis is really common with endometriosis. Um, people don't feel seen or understood, or like you said at the beginning, they're dismissed as having women's troubles. But in addition to that, this lack of continuity of care and this frustration of being sent back and forth between doctors. So, one woman was being treated for endometriosis and was told that she had irritable bowel syndrome. But when she said, Sorry, gut doctor, they were like, No, you've got endometriosis, and she's just being flicked back and forth between specialists. So, th- this appreciation that these studies, uh, that these cases might be interlinked is really valuable. Um, And so one of the people I spoke to was Sophie Volker, and she's got a history of depression as well as endometriosis and gut problems. Uh, But like many women, it took her a really long time to get a diagnosis, and her doctors didn't immediately draw the link between the three conditions. I'd had, you know, really painful periods, had had gut problems forever, just thought that was a pretty normal part of my life. And so I think the confusion of not having any kind of answers, not having a diagnosis and having pain all the time probably did contribute a little bit to my being depressed.
0: That's uh, Sophie Volker. I mean, it's fine to say there's a genetic link and the researchers think it is cause and effect, but if it is cause and effect, what's the biological mechanism?
1: They think it has something to do with inflammation. So these genetic pathways, it's not like the only job that they have is to give someone endo or to give someone depression. They're they're gene sequences that have to do with cell death and repair. And they, they do all sorts of different things, but they think that inflammation is playing a role. And so one of the I mean, yeah, you sort of do this genetic analysis and then it's up to some other group of researchers to figure out what to do with it. But there have been some other studies already into whether diet interventions, for example, a low FODMAP diet can be helpful in people with endometriosis and they've had promising results. So this kind of helps put that into context and it would be good to see more research in that space. And it also has implications for the sorts of medications that people are um, prescribed. So if you've got a gut problem then taking a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory for your endometriosis pain might not be appropriate because you've got gut problems. But also, because we do know what genetic pathways might be involved now, then those pathways and genes could be potential targets for drugs, especially in those people who have both endometriosis and depression.
0: And is there any evidence... Well, I suppose the the other thing is that um, there is evidence from some interesting antidepressants, tricyclics, that they can have odd effects that have got nothing to do with actually their antidepressant effects. And it could be that you could start to use antidepressants not for their necessarily their effect on depression, but they could have an effect on the endometriosis.
1: Perhaps, exactly. And it also highlights the importance for screening. So if you've got someone coming in with, say, depression and gut problems, and they're a woman screening them for endometriosis as well because there is a higher than average likelihood that that woman also has endometriosis.
0: Have we given GPs a lot of work after today's <laughs> health report you've got to work out with the fish oil tablets and you've got to work out with the depression and the gut problems and endometriosis, all serious issues
1: Well let's give them some more because we've got a whole swag of questions um, from our listeners today and I'm really excited to chuck them all at you and see what you have to say about it.
0: Yeah that. let's see the uh, dr- the address to send in your questions and comments is healthreport at abc.net Fire away I'm I'm blindfolded and ready to go. (laughs)
1: Well, Jackie's asking about Hashimoto's disease, which is what they have. Uh, Jackie's heard that it can be genetic or maybe as a result of previous virus like Epstein-Barr virus, and that's making her fearful of coronavirus if her children get it. What are the effects of viruses on our autoimmune system? Because Hashimoto's is difficult to balance. Jackie suffers from on-off tiredness. What evidence is there of Hashimoto's and past viruses?
0: Okay, so Hashimoto's thyroiditis is an autoimmune disease. So the immune system attacks the thyroid gland and your thyroid gland loses its function. So you become hypothyroid and it gives you all sorts of effects like tiredness, fatigue, your skin can become dry, your face and hands can become puffy and other problems as well. Important to diagnose because it's easily treated with, or relatively easily treated with uh, thyroid supplements. But you've got to be properly investigated for that and sometimes you need a thyroid biopsy because there is an increased risk of malignancy, not necessarily serious malignancy, but there is a risk of malignancy with Hashimoto's. And there is an association with other autoimmune diseases like diabetes and celiac disease. Okay, so that's the background to Hashimoto's. It is an autoimmune disease. Now, there is a theory that autoimmune diseases can be triggered by viruses. Mumps has been implicated in the past and some other viruses as well, Coxsackie and a few others, and where the, the theory is that you get infected with a virus and the virus is genetically similar to um, the, the tissue in a given part of your body, um, the pancreas for diabetes, the gut lining cells for celiac disease and the thyroid cells for Hashimoto's. Never been conclusively proven, but there, there is some suggestion that viruses in some cases can be there. There's no evidence yet that coronaviruses in general are a cause of autoimmune disease. It's not impossible, but it's unlikely. And the question then is, are you more prone to problems with coronavirus if you have an autoimmune disease? Well, maybe some of the treatments for autoimmune disease can make you a bit more prone, but autoimmune disease itself is not an immune deficiency. So just having Hashimoto's and being on thyroid supplements in theory, should not make you any more susceptible to coronavirus.
1: But we do know that some people with coronavirus get that long COVID syndrome where they have similar symptoms to that prolonged fatigue.
0: That's right. And people are concerned that maybe the coronavirus can infect the thyroid gland or can can affect the thyroid gland. It affects many other organs and cause maybe a temporary form of hypothyroidism. The other question that Jackie asks is about genetics. And yes, there is an inherited tendency to some autoimmune diseases. So if actually Motors runs in the family, you may be more susceptible.
1: David's asking for some good news, Norman. Uh, He wants you to tell him that there's a a fix for tinnitus, that ringing in your ears, it's driving him mad. The web is full of cures, but he's skeptical. What does the science say? Look,
0: the good news is that there are a series of things that you can do for tinnitus. So tinnitus is a sound in your ears most of us can hear this sound if we really concentrate or if you're in an absolute silent environment you can hear a kind of buzzing singing in in the air and this is really exaggerated in people with tinnitus and it can be really it can dominate their lives it can you know drive people nuts when it's associated with deafness it's called meniere's disease but we're just talking about tinnitus the sound in your ears itself it can be brought on by drugs such as aspirin aspirin is notorious Um, for bringing on tinnitus, particularly high-dose aspirin. There have been various treatments. There's been tinnitus retraining therapy, which kind of retrains you to try and cope with the tinnitus noise. There's cognitive behavioural therapy, which again changes the way you think about it. People have tried zinc. Zinc doesn't work. People have tried um, betahistine, which is used for Meniere's disease, but there's no proof that it really works in Meniere's disease, although large numbers of people take it, and it's been tried in tinnitus, and the randomised trial shows that it doesn't really work. But what does work is um, sound therapy to some extent. So there are things that work a little bit. So cognitive behavioural therapy works a little bit. Sound therapy works a little bit. And so you can actually, with somebody who's experienced in dealing with tinnitus, you can get two or three things going at the same time, which overall make it easier to cope with. But there's no magic answer here, the one knockout treatment there. Um, But there are things that you can not bother with and zinc and antihistamines are two of them.
1: What does sound therapy involve?
0: It's essentially a distracting sound. It's using like white noise to distract yourself.
1: Wow. Uh, Well, Michael's asking about uh, prostate examinations. We've been talking about prostate... uh, i clenching my buttocks
0: as (laughs) you speak.
1: Well, uh, Michael's GP just does a blood test for the prostate now instead of the finger probe. Uh, But some of Michael's older friends say that the blood test is not conclusive and that a finger probe is also required. What do you say to that, Norman?
0: Okay. So studies on rectal examination and uh, prostate exams. Well... Urologists, if you go and see a urologist about your prostate, they will do a rectal examination because the PSA test is notorious. It's not very accurate. It just is a measure of really a large prostate. And if it's going up quickly over time, then it can, or it's really very high, it can be a sign that you may have a cancer in the prostate gland. But if you've got a lowish, I should say, PSA test, then doing a rectal examination can tell you whether the prostate feels normal or not. So if you put your finger in and the prostate feels hard and nuggety and nasty, it almost doesn't matter what the PSA is, that's an abnormal prostate. And I think urologists would argue that maybe GPs don't do enough of this to really know what they're feeling in there uh, to be sure, which is possibly why the GP is only doing a PSA test. By the way, for GPs doing a PSA test, they really need to take informed consent because you've got to know what you're getting for this. The commonest thing now these days, or the, the the standard of practice here, the gold standard of practice here is that if you've got a worrying PSA, then you don't go straight to a biopsy like they used to do, is that an MRI scan of the prostate really does start to inform you about what's going on in the prostate, whether there's something to worry about or whether you can just be watched. And if you do need a biopsy, where the urologist needs to go and do the the biopsy. So um, an MRI is certainly more useful than a finger, but you may not need an MRI if they're not worried about the PSA test. And often it's what happens to the PSA test over time that counts.
1: And PSA stands for prostate-specific antigen, and it's just a, a protein in your blood that can kind of indicate what's happening in your prostate.
0: Thank you, Tegan. You're absolutely right.
1: Irene's wanting to talk about gastric banding or the bariatric surgery story that we were talking about a few weeks ago. And really, Irene wants to talk about When patients know they want something, and even if a doctor tells them that maybe they're not a good candidate for it or it's not the right fit for them, that they're just going to shop around until they find someone who'll give it to them. And Irene's asking, if after a full and frank discussion of the pros and cons of all the options, if a patient makes the informed decision that that a medical practitioner doesn't think is best, does the medical practitioner have the right to refuse the patient? the option that the patient has chosen?
0: Well, the short answer is yes. There's no obligation on the doctor to give a treatment that they genuinely believe is the wrong treatment or might be harmful. So that's pretty standard. But it is hard to resist. And sometimes the decision is difficult. It's not that you're going to die if you have this treatment. And therefore, it it is nuanced. And it is particularly difficult in obstetrics when a woman might ask for a caesarean section. The obstetrician feels is not indicated because there's a lot of, you know, there could be anxiety. What if something goes wrong in this pregnancy? And I've said no to the caesarean section. You can just imagine what's going on in the obstetrician's head. But there are other things as well that, you know, going in for what might be a radical procedure. Plastic surgeons, good plastic surgeons, for example, will will do a psychological assessment on somebody wanting plastic surgery. And if they think they're having it for the wrong reasons or multiple uh, plastic surgeries, they will recommend against it. Similarly, uh, a good spinal surgeon will only do spinal surgery if you meet certain criteria and will not do it just because you demand it because you could really get into tiger country.
1: What's the takeaway for a patient here, though? It's not wrong to seek a second opinion if you're not sure... No, abso- the first you're one.
0: absolutely entitled to a second opinion, and second opinions are really, really a good thing to have, and it's your right to have one, and it's your right to shop around if you if you're not happy with it. And sometimes, and often, patients will know far better than doctors just the severity of their condition is and how bad their need is. But you've got to listen also to the doctor to see how good their argument is for for not doing it. A- an example of this that I often quote, where I think the patient is usually right, is when is genetic testing in cancer. And I think that oncologists in Australia have been very slow to do genetic testing in cancer, when people have a, a right to it, and the harm is very low. You might spend some money on it and not exactly know what's going to happen as a result of it, or in other words, there's no action taken. But we were pretty slow in Australia in getting into allowing people to have genetic testing. And it varied according to city. If you were in Queensland, you would get genetic testing. If you were in Melbourne, you would often get it. And if you were in Sydney, you wouldn't. And in Western Australia, often you wouldn't. It's changed now. But that's another example where you want something. It's just a blood test. Why wouldn't you have it? As long as you know what the pros and cons are of the results that you get.
1: Mm. Trusting your doctor on one hand and treating patients as adults on another. Yep. Kim's writing in about the low FODMAP diet, which we've talked about, I think, three or four weeks in a row now. And Kim wants to let our listeners know that the Monash University have excellent information about the FODMAP diet and even have an app for that. And Kim's hoping this will help this person who's starting with what's a challenging but worthwhile diet.
0: Thank you very much for that. And uh, we'll refer people on to that site. And, uh do you want to talk about Jack? Jack, uh, maybe I'll just do this one. Mm. Jack um, writes in, and, and he's listening to this episode on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Yes, the Health Report is broadcast in Canada. It's in. It's at some ungodly hour, so I'm impressed that Jack has, in, you know, must have insomnia because he hears this. Jack's a pediatrician who's had a breastfeeding support clinic in Toronto for 35 years, and he's talking about this story you and I did last week, Tegan, on cow's milk allergy, and it's been a particular interest for him. He believes that cow's milk allergy in exclusively breastfed babies is rare. What we actually see as causing the syndrome described is due to a mother's having had a decrease in her milk supply. The decrease doesn't mean not enough milk, but rather less than the baby has been used to. The baby starts typically around three months of age to pull at the breast, Fuss at the breast, sometimes start to reject the breast, but often will feed well at night. The baby will suck his fingers or her fingers much of the time, and some babies will have blood in the stool. Mm.
1: That's really interesting, but I mean, if one of my breastfed babies had done that, I would have been worried.
0: Yeah, particularly blood in the stool. So I think you've got blood in the stool. You really do want to get checked up by your pediatrician um, and, um, and see how you go.
1: But another explanation for why people might think that there's a cow's milk allergy there where there might not be one.
0: Yes. And, you know, and also there is cow's milk intolerance, which is not necessarily uh, an allergy where the baby is a bit intolerant for a while. But again, in breastfed babies, the, the message from this research that we did, I think it was last week, was that very little cow's milk protein gets through to the baby in breast milk.
1: And one final question or comment from Susia saying, there's been a lot of talk about what's required from the medical community and the government to help manage mental illness, but this person's wondering what the community could do, particularly when their friends or family are engaging in highly risky behaviour when they're ill. This person's thinking specifically of bipolar. They might not realise it and they might be refusing to see their psychiatrist.
0: So there's lots of things the community can do. I'm talking about just ordinary people who don't necessarily have a qualification. Um, the Are you Okay movement is absolutely right. So if you see somebody who seems to be in distress it is okay to ask them if they're okay and then to pursue that conversation and if they need help to be able to direct them accordingly to lifeline or to beyond blue or to get some help from their, particularly to get some help from their general practitioner the other thing that we as a community can do is not stigmatize people who've got a mental health issue this is a problem that needs to be dealt with it is not something that requires stigma it does not some require something that we should be frightened of It is particularly difficult when people have severe uh, mental health issues, such as bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, and they are refusing help. And really what you've got to try and do there is seek advice. Um, Again, Lifeline might be able to help you. Um, You can seek advice from uh, the black dog has got a lot of good information on bipolar disorder. And, uh, and it's about family and family support. It's also about if they're spending a lot of money, deactivating their credit card or taking it away from them you know, and, and making them as safe as they possibly can be. Because people with bipolar disorder can go into a very deep, dark depression, which can be very dangerous indeed. Um, so there's only a limit to what a family can do, but you can actually try to engage resources that are around you, such as your general practitioner.
1: That's right, looking for help, being compassionate and not being afraid to talk about mental illness. Well, if you've got a question or a comment, please email us. We're at healthreport at abc.net.au. And
0: we'll see you next week.
1: See you then.